transition now. We're, we're going into uh, to the sermon. And typically around Christmas time, uh, we will hear sermons about the birth of Jesus, prophecies about his birth. Uh, but we're not going to do that because we've been in the Gospel of Luke. We're now at the end of the Gospel of Luke, and actually we're at the crucifixion of Jesus. So this might seem odd. We're looking at the crucifixion of Jesus during the season where typically we're celebrating his birth, but I think it's good. Uh, Jesus came to this earth on a mission. Being born uh, and living as a man on this earth was not a field trip for Jesus. He wasn't coming, just checking things out. He came on a mission, and that mission was that he would die on a cross so that we who believe in him would be saved. And so as we go through the remaining text in Luke, which we will finish on Christmas Eve, I want us to be reminded that the child that was born in Bethlehem is the Savior who died at the cross. When we think of the manger, we should always think of the cross also. One does not exist without the other. Now today, we're going to look in Luke chapter 23, and we're going to look at the last four sayings of Jesus. As he's nailed to the cross, what are the last four things that he's going to say? And if you ever want to know what, what's in a person, put him in the fire and see what comes out. And, and here, as Jesus endures the fiery trial of the crucifixion, we see the compassionate heart of our God. We see his love and his grace. And that's probably what has stood out to me more and more as I've gone through this passage more and more, just leading up right till literally this time, is just how God reveals his love and his grace through his son by what he says at the cross. And so if you have your Bibles, I want to invite you to stand. We're in Luke chapter 23. We are going to read verses 26 through 49. We stand because we believe God's word is inspired, it comes with his full authority, and we do so to honor our king. And as they led him away, they seized one, Simon of Cyrene, who was coming in from the country, and laid on him the cross to carry it behind Jesus. And there followed him a great multitude of the people and of women who were mourning and lamenting for him. But turning to them, Jesus said, Daughters of Jerusalem, do not weep for me, but weep for yourselves and for your children. For behold, the days are coming when they will say, Blessed are the barren and the wombs that never bore and the breasts that never nursed. Then they will begin to say to the mountains, Fall on us into the hills, cover us. For if they do these things when the wood is green, what will happen when it is dry? Two others who were criminals were led away to be put to death with him. And when they came to the place that is called the skull, there they crucified him and the criminals, one on his right and one on his left. And Jesus said, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. And they cast lots to divide his garments. And the people stood by watching, but the rulers scoffed at him, saying, He saved others. Let him save himself, if he is the Christ of God, his chosen one. The soldiers also mocked him, coming up and offering him sour, wi sour wine and saying, If you're the king of the Jews, save yourself. There was also an inscription over him, This is the king of the Jews. One of the criminals who were hanged railed at him, saying, Are you not the Christ? Save yourself and us. But the other rebuked him, saying, Do you not fear God, since you are under the same sentence of condemnation? And we indeed justly, for we are receiving the due reward of our deeds. This man has done nothing wrong. And he said, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. 
And he said to him, truly, I say to you, today you will be with me in paradise. And it was, not, and it was now about the sixth hour, and there was darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour, while the sun's light fell, and the curtain of the temple was torn in two. Then Jesus called out with a loud voice and said, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. And having said this, he breathed his last. Now when the centurion saw what had taken place, he praised God, saying, certainly this man was innocent. And all the crowds that had assembled for this spectacle, when they saw what had taken place, returned home, beating their breasts. And all his acquaintances and the women who had followed him from Galilee stood at a distance watching these things. Let's pray. Father, we praise you that you have sent your son to die on a cross. God, it is an amazing sacrifice that you have done to send your son to die on the cross for us who are sinful. And Lord, I pray that as we are in this text, that your spirit would illuminate our hearts, that we would see the beauty of your son in the gospel here. That we would understand the depravity of our sin that has led your son to the cross and the glory of the father that he died and that he would be raised again, showing his victory over sin and death and Satan. God, I pray that you would fill us with compassion, with understanding, with urgency to share the gospel today. God, help us to understand the heart of your son Jesus as he sought your glory on the cross. In your name, Jesus, amen. You all may be seated. So we're going to look at the four last sayings. The first one I've titled, The Urgency of the Gospel. Verse 27, there is a large number of men and women following Jesus. Verse 28, Jesus turns to the women and he says, daughters of Jerusalem. Now just so you know, we're most, like, most likely not talking to disciples of Jesus. For a while now, Jesus has been talking about Jerusalem and the destruction that is going to come upon Jerusalem. So saying the daughters of Jerusalem are saying the daughters that are characterized by this destruction. So we're referring to unbelievers who are following Jesus. They're crying, they're weeping for whatever reason, but they are not believers. They, if they were, they'd be called, as we see at the end of the text, those who have followed him, they'd be called the disciples. So we're talking to those who do not know Jesus. So in verse 28, Jesus turns and says, Daughters of Jerusalem, do not weep for me, but weep for yourselves and for your children. Now, why does Jesus say this? Verse 29 gives us the answer. We know it gives us the answer because verse 29 starts with that connecting word, for, which shows he's now about to explain what he has just said. So, for, behold, the days are coming when they will say, Blessed are the barren and the wombs that never bore and the breasts that never nursed. Then they will begin to say to the mountains, fall on us into the hills, cover us. So Jesus is warning of a judgment that is to come. Now all throughout the Bible, women, when they have babies, it's a blessing. But here Jesus says, you will not want to have babies during this time. There will be a great judgment that is coming. You will be crying out for the rocks to fall on you. Now ever since Chapter 19, when Jesus entered into Jerusalem, he has prophesied about the judgment that is going to come upon this city. 
And what we see is that this judgment's no slap on the hand. Jesus says that people will rather have rocks crush them than face the judgment of God. Why? Why is this judgment so severe? Well, the answer is they've rejected Jesus. We see that they're going to crucify him. Back in Luke 19, 44, Jesus weeps. And he weeps because the people do not recognize him. They do not receive him, but rather they reject him. Listen, if you're here, you know this Bible that we have, made up of 66 books, it's not opinion. It's not fiction. But rather, what we do with this message matters. It has eternal consequences. And all throughout the Bible, beginning in the very beginning, God has communicated that if we do not trust Him, if we trust in ourselves or anything other than God, we will face judgment. Adam and Eve, they're in the garden. And rather than trusting in God, they trust in themselves, they take the fruit, and thus they are removed from the garden. And from there, we see that all of humanity is now sinful, and by the time we get to chapter 6, God speaks and says, all of humanity is only evil continually, and so he floods the earth and saves only one family. He does so again to show the judgment against sin. If you know the, the story, then as we go on in Genesis, we come across those, that city Sodom and Gomorrah, does that sound familiar? Those names are used all throughout Scripture to show God's judgment against sin. Sodom and Gomorrah would be those idolatrous cities known for its indulgence and sexuality and every type of sin. And God rains fire down on these cities to show his judgment against those who do not believe in him. And if you know the story, as Israel is formed, eventually Israel is divided into two kingdoms, a northern kingdom and a southern kingdom. The northern kingdom is called Israel. It's destroyed in 722 B.C. by the Syrians. The southern kingdom, known as Judah, is destroyed in 609 by Babylon. His people go into exile because they do not believe in him. Regularly throughout Scripture, God shows All who do not believe in me will face judgment. And even the the judgment that Jesus is talking about here is a foreshadowing. All of these judgments are a foreshadowing of a much greater judgment that's going to take place when Jesus returns. We know this because when we go to Revelation chapter 6, we read the very same word. So I'm going to read Revelation chapter 6. Verses 15 and 17. And as I read this, I want you to try to connect what's similar between this passage and the one we just read here in Luke. Then the kings of the earth and the great ones and the generals and the rich and the powerful and everyone, slave and free, hid themselves in the caves and among the rocks of the mountains, calling to the mountains and rocks, fall on us. And hide us from the face of him who is seated on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb, for the great day of their wrath has come, and who can stand? You see the connection? Jesus is saying in Jerusalem in AD 70, when Titus will come, he will destroy this city, and not one stone will be left on top of the other. And people will be saying, We'd rather have rocks crush us than face this judgment that God has sent upon them, which this looks forward to a much greater judgment when Jesus returns and we read the wrath of the Lamb when he comes and people will say, we want rocks to fall on us, to hide us from his judgment. 
All of the judgments in the Bible look forward to the great judgment of God. All of them are warnings to us. All of them are God's gracious call to us. Repent and believe. For all who do not, there is a judgment that is coming. And this is a judgment that will end the world. And it doesn't matter who you are. Notice who's included in this text in Revelation. It talks about the slave, the free, the great ones, the generals, the rich, the powerful. It doesn't matter who you are. Your resume, your reputation, what you have done will not save you from God's judgment. And this judgment's not like the movies Armageddon or Deep Impact. Are those dated now? Should I have used like more recent? I was like thinking about that as I wrote that. I'm like, man, that's like back when I was in high school. And the sad thing is, you guys don't even know what I'm talking about. Have you seen that movie? What kind of parents are you? I mean, you got to show them the classics. It's not even classic, is it? It's not that old. Anyways, so, but in those movies, they're all these end-of-the-world event movies. And what do all those movies have in common? Humanity comes up with a way to save themselves, Right? Every time. But this is not one of those things that we are going to be able to save ourselves. Verse 31, Jesus says, For if they do these things when the wood is green, what will happen when it's dry? Well, that's clear, right? Okay, so that one takes a little bit of thinking through. But if you think through it, dry wood is not suitable for judgment, right? Or not suitable for burning. Like I just took down three, four trees in my front yard. All that wood is stacked in my backyard. I'm not burning any of it this year, right? That would be dumb. It's still green. It doesn't burn yet. So you wait for it to dry. Dry wood is suitable for fire. But if Jesus is the green wood who's unsuitable for judgment, if he goes to the judgment, how much more will those who have not believed, how much more will those who are dry, the dry wood, will they face the fire of God's judgment? Do you see the comparison here? If Jesus is going to face the judgment, how much more will those who actually deserve the judgment experience it? We have no more hope escaping the judgment of God than a spider web can stop a boulder from falling. No hope from it. The only hope we have is trusting in the gospel of Jesus Christ. And that's what we're going to be looking at this morning. But before we move on, let me ask you, what do we learn about Jesus in these words? He's on the way to Golgotha. He's going up the hill to where he's going to be crucified, where he'll be nailed. He's already gone through torture. He's going to be tortured once again as the nails pierce through his flesh, holding him on the cross where eventually he will die. And he says, don't weep for me. Isn't that interesting? Don't feel bad for me. Don't cry for me. Who do you cry for? He says, cry for yourself. Why? Because Jesus is so concerned for those who are made in his image. Like one thing that has stood out for me, to me is just the love that Jesus has for his creation. On the way to the cross where he is being killed by his creation, those made in his image, he continually warns him his mission is to come and save and with every last breath he uses it to communicate the love of the father that they should repent that they should believe in him they should avoid the judgment that is coming and we're going to see that as we progress all the way through this text now in verses 32 and 33 it, these verses they're so short they're almost shocking 
Luke spends no time talking about the crucifixion. Look at them. Two others who were criminals were led away, put to death. They came to the place that's called the skull. There they crucified him. Criminals, one on his right, one on his left. That's the crucifixion. That was it. Like Jesus, or Luke doesn't pay any attention to that. He doesn't want to talk about how they stretched out his arms. He doesn't talk about the nails going into him. He just he gets us to where Jesus is. He's on the cross, and his focus is on the heart of Jesus. He focuses on what is Jesus going to say? What is happening? He wants us to see the mission of Jesus. He's not concerned with the pain and what happened to get him up there because he wants us to know what Jesus has to say. And in verse 34, we now come to the second thing that Jesus will say where we see the need for the gospel. And Jesus prays to the Father, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. Now, if you've been in church for a long time, if you've been a Christian, you know forgiveness is why Jesus came to the cross. We've already seen we're all underneath the judgment of God. Ever since Adam and Eve, we all become sinful. We're born sinful. We're born rebelling against God. And the only way to escape this judgment is by believing in Jesus Christ and receiving forgiveness of our sins. But what does Jesus mean? They don't know what they're doing. I mean, don't they know what they're doing? You're crucifying Jesus. What does he mean? They, they don't know. Well, they don't actually believe that he's the king of kings. They don't actually believe he's the Lord of lords. They don't actually think they have the creator of the universe on the cross at this moment. For if they did, what would they be doing? Falling down and worshiping him. And, and the fact that they don't know him stands out when we look at how they mock him. Look at what they say. The rulers scoff, and they say, he saved others, let him, let him save himself. If he is the Christ of God, his chosen one. You see how they mock him? If you're really the chosen one, save yourself. The soldiers mock, if you're the king of the Jews, save yourself. One of the criminals rails at Jesus saying, are you not the Christ, the Messiah, the anointed one, the promised one? Save yourself and us. They all know three things about Jesus. They know he saved others. They know he's said to be the king of the Jews. They know that Lazarus was raised from the dead. They know that the lepers were healed, the lame were healed. They know of the great works that he has done. They know Jesus proclaimed to be the king of the Jews. Even Pilate, he puts the inscription, this is the king of the Jews. Like, it's titled who he is, but the irony is nobody believes it. Andrew preached on this last week on, on the irony of what's being said all around Jesus. There's truth in everything, but the problem is they're mocking him. They don't think it actually is true. Pilate most likely writes, this is the king of the Jews, because he's been strong-armed to crucify him. He didn't want to crucify him. The Jews kind of made him crucify him. So he says, fine, I'll crucify him. I'm going to let everyone know this is your king. This is the king of the Jews. Look how powerful and weak he is. It's his way of mocking and, and getting back at the Jews. They've all missed the truth, though, that this actually is the King of Kings, the Lord of Lords. But why? How? How do they miss this? I want to read two texts, and, and you'll make the connection. I'll give it to you, but, but you'll see the connection. Two texts. One is from 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verses 3 and 4. Even if our gospel is veiled, it's veiled to those who are perishing. In their case, 
the God of this world, has blinded the minds of the unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. So Paul, here he says, look, when we preach the gospel, it's veiled to people who are perishing, to those who do not yet believe. And who blinds them? In their case, the God of this world, meaning Satan. Ephesians 4.18, one other text. They are darkened in their understanding, alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to, the harden, due to their hardness of heart. Why do they not see? Because they have hard hearts. So it's not only that Satan blinds, but their own hearts are full of sin. Your heart, my heart, all before we come to know Jesus is full of sin, and therefore we are blinded to the truth of Christ. The reason the crowds have shouted, crucify Jesus, is because they have sinful hearts. They don't want to believe in Jesus. The reason your neighbor, your coworker, your family member, the reason they don't believe in Jesus is not simply because they don't need more information. Like, do you realize that? The people around Jesus have all the information they need. Have you ever thought, man, if I, how great it would have been to live in the days of Jesus? I clearly would have saw who he was. I would have worshipped him. There was a lot of people that saw everything that he did, and they rejected him. Information is not just what we need. What we need is the grace of God. We need the Spirit to awaken our hearts. And notice what's in common with all the mockery. If Jesus is the Christ, what should he do? He should save himself, right? And all of them, it's save himself, save himself, save himself. Prove it. The message of the world is we don't believe in crucified messiahs. That's not who I'm trusting in. The world wants a messiah that, that demands respect. The world wants a messiah that enters in um, and everyone acknowledge him. They want a king. They want someone powerful. Remember what the first century expectation of a messiah was. He would enter into Jerusalem on a stallion, lead a great army, overcome the Romans, and lead Israel into victory away from all Roman oppression. But is the world really different than two, now than 2,000 years ago? 2,000 years ago, they wanted to define who God is and, and what he looks like, and the same is for us. The reason people don't believe is because they don't want Jesus. He's not what they're looking for. And so what does Jesus do? Think about this. What does Jesus do? He's surrounded by people that don't believe in him, surrounded by people that don't love him. So what does he do? He prays. Think about that. He prays. Father, forgive them. And these are not, he doesn't pray in precatory prayers. You know what those ones are? The ones where you pray curses down on people. You see those sometimes in the, in the, in the Psalms. They're kind of fun to read. You read them. I mean, this would be a great time, right? You're on the cross. God, I came, I did what you wanted, they didn't believe, do it, God, bring the fire. Let them see it, light them up. Like, right? Like, honestly, like, is that kind of the prayer you would have done? Because I think that's what I would have done. Like, I, I, I gave you your chance. Three strikes, you're out. He prays grace to be rained down on them. Listen, it is easy to love people when they love us, right? It's easy. I, I love people who do everything I want them to do. I get along with those people so well. 
But what we think of others is most clearly revealed when they don't do what we want, when they don't love us. So here, again, in this prayer, we see the heart of our God. We see the heart of Jesus, that he's full of love and grace and compassion. And as Christians, you know, we have the Spirit of God in us so that we would love like Jesus. We know, you know, every deed, every word that we say is to reveal the love of God. But we need to know this, that when we demonstrate the love of Jesus in the face of trials, in the face of rejection, in the face of hostility, it's like we're raising a megaphone and now our love is being shouted all the louder to the world. Hear this, when people don't like you, when people are mean to you, that's God giving you an incredible opportunity to share the gospel of love in this world. Do you know that? Think this through. If you're a student, junior high, high school, I think all the other students are downstairs. What's one of the hardest things that, that, you, that you're faced with? Sharing the love of Jesus at school, right? I mean, sharing Jesus to your friends. Do I want them to know that I'm a Christian? How do I invite them to church? How do I talk to them about Jesus? Your teachers are often saying things like, you know, God doesn't really exist or in some form of evolution. Throughout the school, people will talk about it's dumb to be a Christian or they don't think it's smart to get up early on Sundays and gather with the church. You can sleep in or do a tons of other things. So there's all these things, these messages that are going around school saying, look, we just don't do this. And so we're afraid. Well, if I let them know that I'm a Christian, what if I lose friendships? What if they make fun of me? What if they reject me? What if they don't like me? But what's the flip side of that? If they reject me, if they do these things, what does that do? That gives me the opportunity to love them, to be patient with them, to be gracious with them, to be kind to them, to show them the love of Jesus. Through the rejection, you will shine brighter for the gospel. In fact, that, that's the same at work. I've talked with a lot of guys, especially um, military, guys who are here and guys who have left now, uh, because they've been restationed, about what it's like to be a Christian on base. Because they say, look, there's a clear line. We're not supposed to share the gospel or do this thing. Or, or I know I can go this far, but, but I can't do this over here or I might lose my job. And so I have wrestled and said, well, what does the scripture say? Are we more concerned with, with what other people are going to do or with being rejected or even losing a job than shining brightly for the gospel now i'm not advocating we go lose our jobs but i'm advocating that in the light of rejection the gospel shines very bright when we stand up for it so let us not be so timid and so shy to say well i just don't want to make people uncomfortable no let's make them uncomfortable because either they're going to accept it or they're going to reject it but if they reject it guess what happens the love of the gospel is shited is shited, is shouted all the more brightly and loudly. That's what happens here. I mean, the thing we would expect is Jesus say, light them up, they rejected me. But rather he says, forgive them. Those words echo throughout our souls because they're so loud and they communicate the love and the compassion of the gospel. If you have kids today, my kids, you know they're pastor kids, so they're mostly perfect. <laughs> you know, one of them was doing something, and, and the other one wanted it, so, 
Well, you know how that works, right? So they took it, and there was war in my house this morning. And, and so then I come in, and so now I'm like, what do I do? You know, am I the calm or gracious one, or do, do I enter into the war zone? And at home, this is what happens a lot, because I find that I'm a lot more gracious without, with people outside my house than inside my house. You ever find that? Yes, you do. Good. We're all on the same page. Um, so, so what happens at home is, is we often say, well, I wouldn't have been rude if you had only came at me like this. I'm only angry because of this. Well, she hit me, so I hit her back. Like, those are the kind of things that happen in our house, right? But what would happen is if when one of us is rude to the other, the person shows the love and grace of the gospel at that moment and shepherds our heart rather than adds fuel to it and we enter into war. Rather than saying, well, because you responded in rudeness, now I am justified being rude. Rather, we show the love and patience of Jesus. That will speak much more loudly than any words that we can yell. Let's teach our kids that when one takes something, how we respond at that moment will either, will either increase the conflict or it'll begin to shepherd them towards Jesus. Now, does it do it right away? No. Does it take a lot of practice? Yes. But those are the kind of conversations we want to have because as we respond to conflict and rejection and hostility and persecution with the grace of the gospel, God's love goes forth. And the neat thing is, the prayer's answered, right? Like the prayer is answered. You're going, is it? Is it? Yes, it's answered. Who gets saved? The criminal next to Jesus. Who else gets saved? Maybe the centurion that praises God and says, this man is innocent. I got to think something's going on in his heart. And then if that's all we know here, what do we know that takes place in a few weeks from this moment? Pentecost. Peter stands up and preaches, and like three people come to know Jesus, right? 3,000 people are saved that day. I guarantee you there's people that are saved that day that are also at the cross that day. God's prayer is answered. God loves to work through prayer. One of the most powerful ways we can love people is by sharing the gospel with them and praying for them. This is the driving force behind the prayer meeting. So we just want to see God work. And we know that God working is not based on our abilities, but it's based upon His work, His power, His strength. And so we just want to say, God, use us. God, work in us. Help us to be bold. Help us to share the gospel. Let's look at the third saying, or the, the assurance of the gospel. Look at verse 43. This is where Jesus speaks to the criminal. Now just before this, verse 39, one of the criminals rails on Jesus. The other criminal turns, and he does several things. First, he rebukes the criminal that mocks Jesus. Second, he acknowledges his own sin. He says, we deserve to be up here, right? But the other criminal rebuked him. Do you not fear God since you are under the same sentence of condemnation? Verse 41, and we indeed justly. We're supposed to be on the cross. We're actually guilty. Third, he acknowledges that Jesus is innocent. Fourth, verse 42, he asked Jesus, remember me when you enter into his kingdom. Now, how much theology does this guy have? Does he actually understand that upon the death of Jesus, he enters into the courts of heaven? I don't think he gets that. 
but I think he does get that somehow Jesus is going into the kingdom. He's somehow understanding this Jesus is the hope. This Jesus is the one who saves. He doesn't probably understand the whole trinity. He's not going to know the, different, the definition of propitiation. He doesn't know those things, but he knows enough. This man can save me, and he places all of his hope in him. It's a story of salvation at the cross. Now, so I want to share an illustration. This is not my illustration. It's an illustration of a guy critiquing another illustration. So you can put all that together. But it was good, so here you go. Imagine a man at night, and he's suddenly attacked by another in the alleyway. And the guy's going to kill him. So he screams out, help! Lights all turn on. The perpetrator gets up, sees lights. He runs away. Nobody comes out. He comes back and kills the man. Now, why does no one come out? You know the answer, right? Because they're scared, right? I don't want to get killed. So nobody comes out. So then, of course, the gospel is that our our Heavenly Father does send Jesus to come out, right? He does leave heaven. He comes as a man. And he comes to save us at the cost of his own life so we could be saved. That's a decent gospel illustration, right? But it is wrong. You're sitting there going, wait, where is it wrong at? It assumes or it presents the first man as innocent. How about we do this with the illustration? We have a guy who kills another guy and robs him. He runs off into the night. As he's running off, he's attacked by another guy who attacks him and is going to kill him. He cries out, help me. That's who Jesus comes and saves. That's the gospel. Come to the text. What do we have? We have a guy on a cross. Now, petty crimes won't get you on the, cry, on the cross. There's no white-collar criminal here. People who are killed by crosses are insurrectionists. They're rebellious against Rome. Rome's making a statement. You come against Rome, we'll put you on a stick outside the city for all to see. We will crucify you. In all modern-day terms, this guy is a terrorist. Surely there's people around him watching. It's about time this guy gets what he deserves. There's people that are saying, karma has finally caught up. No one is shedding a tear for this guy on the cross. People are snickering at him, sneering at him, going, it's about time. Laughing at him, jeering at him. This man does not deserve mercy, grace, love. He is guilty. And yet, when he believes in Jesus, this man is saved. Who are we in the story? The question is, are you the man that mocks him and does not repent? Or are you the man who has believed in Jesus Christ? Because according to the Bible, we're all born rebellious. Like, we're all against the kingdom of God, right? We rebel against God's rule. The same thing this criminal would have done against Rome, we do infinitely more against God's rule. That's what we do. That's how we live. We've rejected God as our king. Romans 5 says that it's when we were his enemies, that's when God sent his son Jesus to die for us. Now look at the assurance that, God, that Jesus gives. The man confesses faith, and Jesus says, today you'll be with me 
in paradise. Jesus doesn't say, maybe. Jesus doesn't say, you know, you lived most of your life as a pretty, as a kind of a jerk. And you want to be saved in the last 15 seconds? I don't think so. Or he says, you know, your, your bad deeds really outweigh your good deeds. And you just don't have time to flip-flop it, so I'm, I'm sorry. He doesn't say, you're not really the kind I'm looking for. Rather, he says, today you'll be with me in paradise. Now think about that. What does that say about our God? What does that communicate about Jesus? He loves to forgive. Do you know that? Anyone who comes to Jesus confessing their sin, believing in Jesus Christ, is saved. If you're here today and you have not believed in Jesus Christ, I urge you, believe, confess your sins and trust in him. And I promise you, he saves you. By his grace, he welcomes you into his kingdom. And if you're a Christian here, and you find that sometimes you are timid in sharing the gospel, let this text encourage you. Don't ever be intimidated by the person you're sharing the gospel with, thinking, I don't know if this guy could be saved. I don't know if this guy wants to be saved. I'm scared of this guy. Rather, let this text strengthen you and encouraging, knowing when the gospel goes out, it can save anyone. Paul, in chapter 1, verse of uh, First Timothy says, I was the worst of sinners. So let me just say a few things before we move on about what we learn here. It's never too late to come to faith in Jesus. There's a lot of people who think that. It's too late. He doesn't want me. It's never too late. This guy comes to faith within minutes of dying. Your past sins don't disqualify you. So many people think, I'm too dirty. I'm too shameful. I've done too much. This guy could not be dirtier according to the world, could not be more shameful, could not be more guilty. And yet when he confesses faith, Jesus has no problem welcoming him into the kingdom. We see it already, or we've said it already, but we'll say it again. Jesus loves to forgive. This text shows that. And here's another one. Intense suffering was the means used that brought this man to faith. You see that? It took him being nailed to a cross that the Spirit would work in his heart and open his heart that he would believe in Jesus. I don't think we need to pray for bad things to happen to people. But we know that there's difficulty, or there's trials, and there's pains in lots of the people's lives that we know. Sometimes God is using that in Christians' lives to bring them back to faith. But I think often God is using that in the lives of unbelievers that he would awaken them to the gospel. If you have people you're praying for right now, and you know they're going through pains and trials, I want to encourage you to press in on them, to show them the love of Jesus. Present the gospel to them. Let them see in all the despair that they see, there is hope in this world, and it is Jesus Christ. Last we come, <clears throat> last we come to the beauty of the gospel, verse 46. And in verse 44, we see darkness has reigned from noon to three, which most likely signifies the judgment of God. Verse 45, we see <clears throat> the curtain in the temple was ripped, meaning we all now have access to God. The curtain separated everyone from the holy of holies. The curtain's been ripped, ripped. Now, by faith in Jesus, we all can come have access to God. Verse 46, Jesus says, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. Now, these words are a quote from the date from David in Psalm 31, verse 5. In Psalm 31, 
David uses these words because he trusts that God will save him from his enemies. He says, God, do what's most glorious. Save me. Jesus does not pray, does not say these words knowing that he'll be saved. He says, God, I commit my hands to you. Do what is most glorious to you, which will lead to his death. The cross is not an accident. Like you know that, right? The cross was always the plan, all the way back in Genesis, all the way back before the creation of the world. In fact, we could go through the book of Luke, and Luke regularly talks about Jesus going to the cross to die, going to Jerusalem to die. And Jesus heads to the cross so that he could save us, so he could provide forgiveness of sins. Think back at the two criminals. <clears throat> Both criminals have sin in them, right? have sin in them. Anyone who has sin in them has the judgment of God on them. And so if you're here today, we're all born sinful, we're all born with God's judgment on us. Jesus comes that he would take that judgment. And the way he does that is by taking our sin. 2 Corinthians 5.21 says, Jesus became sin. What that means is he takes your sin and he takes my sin so that it actually becomes his sin. So my sin is counted as Jesus' sin, and because then he takes my sin, what happens to the judgment that was on me? It's now on Christ. Now the problem is, nobody can stand in the place of someone else, right? I mean, how can a sinful person stand in the place of another sinful person? But that's what's so incredible. All throughout the text, Jesus is declared innocent. In the text that Andrew preached last week, Pilate says, Jesus is innocent three times. He then said, Herod sent him back to me because he's innocent. So four times earlier, this text, we see Jesus is innocent. The the criminal who gets saved says, Jesus is innocent. The guard, the centurion at the foot of the cross says, Jesus is innocent. Do you see the message Luke is trying to get across? Jesus is innocent. He's not like you and me. He doesn't have sin. So when he goes on the cross, he takes your sin and my sin and all the sins of those who will believe in him and he pays the judgment for them. God's judgment goes from you and and from me and it rests on Jesus so that he would absorb the wrath of God so that we could be saved. And so when Jesus says, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. He's trusting. Father, I'm dying now. I will take the sins of the world and die knowing that you are now counting their sins against me, that they will be forgiven. That's what he's trusting in. That's what he's trusting in, the righteousness of the Father. Hear this. If you have believed in Jesus Christ, you are forgiven. God has no wrath against you at all. No wrath. You will never taste his wrath. All he asks for you is peace, love, grace, mercy, kindness, and compassion. In these four sayings, we see the compassionate heart of our God. We see it. From the very beginning where Jesus warns people, turn away, a judgment is coming, all the way to showing them, I will forgive sins of all who trust in me. I want to encourage you. This Christmas season, I love these seasons, for one, for what we get to do, but also the Christmas season is an awesome time on sharing the gospel with other people. It, it, it's almost easy, right? 
are you doing for Christmas? Well, on Christmas Eve, we're going to go gather with the church. You want to come? It's a really neat Christmas Eve service. I'd like you to come with us. Invite them to your house. Have a Christmas party. There's tons of things you can do. Tons of things you can do this Christmas season to engage coworkers, uh, people you work with, neighbors, family members. It's easy to engage the gospel. I know that sounds intimidating still, but it's easy to share the gospel at this time. The biggest need that people have, the number one gift that's needed is the gospel of Jesus Christ. Let's pray for boldness. Let's pray that God would do what he so loves to do. And what does he love to do? Forgive. He shows that clearly at the cross. So I want to encourage you. Be encouraged that you have been forgiven by the gospel. And let's go and share the gospel with others, knowing that our God loves to forgive. I'm going to pray, then I'm going to ask the men to come forward, and we'll pass out the elements. Our Father, God, we thank you for your son, Jesus. We thank you for the cross. We thank you that you love to forgive. Thank you that, God, you've sent your son, Jesus, to die on a cross, that we who believe in you would be forgiven. God, may we rejoice in that today. And God, may we understand that the gift of your son is so amazing, it's so beautiful, so so brilliant that we cannot contain it, but we must share it with others. And God, fill us with boldness, with strength, with encouragement, that we would share the gospel with others. And God, we ask that you would save. Save people this Christmas season because of the sharing of the gospel. In your name, Jesus.